First time we've combined dinner party with putting the kids to bed with a podcast episode. Well, I'm honored. As am like I. break down the barriers of... And, and we, have a, we have an observer, which is new too. Kind of like, I feel like you're a referee. Yeah, I'll make sure that you guys stay. He's our, he's our Instagram. Friends. Yeah, he's just going to Instagram the whole thing. <laughs> it's going to be this, this story with the little tiny things because there's like a hundred and, and whenever you see that it's just like get this out of my face just just <laughs> i never do you ever watch those? somebody's thing when it's that long no no nobody does i just go x <laughs> not gonna be all snow a wintry mix is forecast for the listening area Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 67. Raised in East Warren, Harwood class of 2002. Her name is also Alex, and she makes things you can wear. Alexandra Baron Klein and her life mate Hans J. Dub von Briesen came over to Casa de Kaufman for some of my wife's ramen. The visit resulted in a fun combo episode that's about 90% Alex and 10% Hans. These Waterbury residents are into some cool shit, not the least of which is Alex's jewelry made from bike inner tubes business. Wintry Mix is Mad River Valley, Waterbury, and Stowe locals and visitors recorded from above my garage in Waterbury Center, half skiing, half not skiing. My email is alex at wintrymixcast.com. The Insta is at wintrymixcast. The pod voicemail is 802-560-5003. Call that puppy. Speak to it. Five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are appreciated, and I'll owe you a beer in the wild. If you'd like to step up from Freeloader, visit patreon.com slash wintrymixcast to toss me a buck or two that I'm donating locally on behalf of the pod listeners. And I'll send you a sticker. Thanks to all of you in that group. Stand by for the goods. The Wintry Mix podcast is supported by the town and country on the mountain road in Stowe. The sign out front is historic, but the bar, restaurant, and menu are all new. Food truck inspired flavors and ever-changing specials. Warm fireplace and prices that bring in the locals. And you can enjoy Opry without your kids driving you nuts thanks to their massive game room. Live from the Fillmore, the ultimate Almond Brothers experience is playing there March 15th as well. Get advance tickets or book your room at townandcountrystow.com. We'll see you at the Town and Country. The lodging's in the front, the party and the parking is in the back. Okay, here we sit, Alexandra Baron Klein, but people probably mispronounce your situation, I would assume.
Yeah, they think sometimes I'm Alexandria. Sometimes they're like, well, if it's with an I, so is it Alex? Is it Alex? And then the Klein, that's pretty common. Alex is kind of cool because I, I grew up with Alex in my situation. Right. <laughs> Alex. I always thought about every time I moved, I always thought about changing my name to Xander. Me too, Xandra. Yeah. I was like, well, actually, we knew a, a Xander. Did you ever do it? No, I tried. Dana sometimes calls me Zan. Zan, Zandra. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought, I moved a lot when I was a kid. And every time I always thought, what if I just, new town, I just call myself Xander. I think it's really cool. <laughs> and I've never had the uh, the cojones to pull it off. So Alexandra Baron Klein of Alexandra Baron Designs Fame Elevator Pitch. What do you got? I make upcycled inner tube jewelry. I went to Pratt to be an art educator and with a concentration in jewelry. And I ended up making jewelry out of bike inner tubes. A concentration in jewelry. Yeah. So uh, the majority of my classes were in ceramics and jewelry. So that meant that like all of my extracurricular credits besides, you know, the core education credits were in those two categories. So I worked in the ceramic studio and I took as many jewelry classes as I could. But you're in Waterbury Center right now. So you are going global, but I think you were, were you born in this area? I was born in East, uh, well, I was born in Burlington, but I grew up in East Warren. So Sugarbush. East Warren. So that means like you're headed over the hill towards Roxbury? Yeah. So just five minutes from there on Prickly Mountain Road. Prickly Mountain Road. You might be my first Harwood graduate in that oh. chair. <laughs> I like this, all these firsts. Obviously, a Harwood students would eventually arrive in this chair. My kids are probably going to Harwood eventually. What do I need to know? Keep them into sports and extracurricular activities. <laughs> or? Or they might end up hanging out in parking lots. Come on, you didn't do both? I did both. <laughs> but I feel like some of the kids to the wayside of Harwood... Had, it hung out in parking lots too much. <laughs> so you graduated when? In 02. And the sports that you're suggesting my kids stay involved in that you participated in were? I mainly did soccer. And then, of course, the art room was my sanctuary. The art room, yeah. Is the art teacher, like, still there? Well, when Gar left about five years ago, my mom wanted me to take over that position. And I couldn't do it. But Wendy is still there, Peterson, and she's amazing. And Sam Grotinger is now the president, and he's amazing. I watched the Twin Towers fall on his laptop my senior year. That was crazy. Oh, my gosh. Crazy. Yeah, I was in college when that happened. I remember going up because I was going up for a photo class. And uh, he's like, you got to see this. I was like, what? And sure enough, we were watching it on his Apple computer. I was like, oh, my goodness. It's crazy to think back to those times where the kind of a national event, total sidetrack that might get edited out. But <laughs> I was a freshman in college when Columbine happened. Oh, yeah. And then, and I was in Colorado at the time. So it was like right. a three-hour drive. It kind of really hit home if yeah, you were in Colorado close. at the time. And then I was a junior or senior, but it was probably more than three years later because college took me a little while uh, for 9-11. Yeah. And just, you make a lot of life decisions. I think pretty quickly following those events, people kind of take a step back and, I don't know, just kind of analyze where they are and what they're doing and whether they're 
happy with it all. Yeah. At least I did. I don't know. Well, it was really interesting because I was already contemplating going to Pratt at that time. And I knew my friend was already there. So that I think was why it was very like memorable for me was because it was like, whoa, this is where I could be. I could have been there, you know, next year. I don't know anything about Pratt. Pratt, Pratt is an art Institute, school. Mm-hmm, is an art school in Brooklyn. I chose it because it actually has a campus, you know, out of the New York City schools. It has this really cool old brick campus with like a fence around it and like the sculpture garden, which has grass and beautiful sculptures. And you kind of feel like you're in this little oasis in the middle of the Brooklyn. Did you have culture shock going from East Warren and Harwood to Manhattan or Brooklyn? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, what? how much was your mind blown? What do you remember? I was just emotionally overwhelmed. Like uh, it wasn't so much that I wasn't prepared for it. It was just the the like day to day of it. You know, I always told people like I went from 12 acres to 12 by 12 feet. And just looking back, my energy, like the emotional energy level that was constantly surrounding me, I was just like vibrating so much higher and so much more like stressed out. Whereas like, I didn't even understand it at the time. But when you're when you have so much land to live on, there's a lot less noise and you can kind of like relax a little. So that was kind of the biggest part for me. When you graduated, you didn't jump right into ABD. You go out west? What did I see? Yep. So I moved, I was looking at moving to Telluride. I had always like the first, my freshman year, I would call my dad on Sundays because Sundays were always the hardest for me because that's like family day in my, in my household. So I'd always be by myself because I hadn't really made a ton of friends and I'd call him crying and be like, I'm quitting. I need to take a Knowles course. I'm going to lose all my outdoor abilities. Like this is awful. (laughs) And my dad would kind of laugh at me and be like, it's only four years, Alex. Just put your head down. It'll be fine. And then you can do whatever you want. Just get a degree. I was like, okay, I could do this. So then of course, you know, what do I do? I go from the biggest city to the smallest town. Um, I was looking at Telluride, but my uncle had been to Crested Butte and he was like, go to Crested Butte. It's awesome. And I looked at the trail map and it said 54% double black diamond and it had these weird teacups and these like, I was like, oh my God. I was like, what is this place? So sure enough, that fall after graduating college, I moved out West and I thought I was going to be an art teacher. And uh, then I found out that the art teacher in Crested Butte was a young woman, slightly older than myself, who already had the job, had just gotten the job and was teaching out of a wheelie cart going around all the different classrooms. So I definitely wasn't getting that job because, you know, once you're the art teacher, you're the art teacher for 30 years. And of course, you know, similar for the Gunnison area. And so I was like, well, none of the jobs are open and they have the wrong season off. I was, I wanted to ski. So I kind of like taught ceramics classes here and there. I worked for this paint your own pottery studio and did an art, like programmed an art summer camp for a little bit. Of course, I was a waitress and a ski patroller for the Crested Butte Ski Patrol for a few years and kind of like always made art. Like I always had these projects. My mom, my whole life has made us birthday cards, like handmade individualized birthday cards or Christmas cards, Valentine's cards. And so I was always doing those types of things, you know, helping her like doing those for my family and always had projects and stuff. But it wasn't until we moved to California that I even started thinking about making jewelry. Because I, I couldn't go, I could do art and like be an art teacher because they had the wrong season off. How'd you get to California with, with the we? You got from Crested Butte to California. What was that decision? Um, well, Hans and I met um, in the fall of 2010. And so we were together and I got offered. Is this in Crested Butte? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So the fall of 2010 in Crested Butte. And then met one of my mom's like childhood friends, uh, this company, Mishu. And she had a jewelry, um, a sterling silver jewelry business where she was the designer and she had it all produced in Bali. And I had met her, I don't know, in a trip out there with my mom and was like, she has the lifestyle. She lived on the backside of Alpine Meadows. She ran her own business. It was, it looked awesome. Like she skied in the morning and worked all the rest of the day or whatever it was. And I was like, I want this. And then a year later, she offered me a job being her assistant. So I was like, well, this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. We had just started dating. We'd been dating for nine months. He had the opportunity that he could transfer most of his credits to Sierra Nevada College. And we both had a like, you know, Crested Butte's always going to be here. What's California all about? So we moved out west farther. All right, we're going to pause here momentarily. Hans and Alex met in Crested Butte, and I would be a shitty podcaster if I didn't take Hans the pod witness and get you some greater detail. Give me the, you know, when did you, when did you guys first lay eyes on each other? This is, a, this is an interesting situation. Um, we laid eyes on each other. Ski town love story. Ski town love story, absolutely. I was actually working with uh, with a guy who knew Alex from growing up in Vermont, uh, Jesse Blumenthal. And he was like, there's this ski patrol girl that I know that we we grew up together and we should go say hi to her. And we went and said hi to her. And, you know, I was a, like more of a park skier at that time. So Alex really didn't pay me any mind. She gave zero about this kid who came in to say hi to her. So we <laughs> so we walked out. It wasn't until the following season when uh, the free skiing tour came through town and we were at the after party and the two of us were dancing, 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 dancing. And uh, the sparks were flying, but Hansi trying to be a, a gentleman who thought that she had a boyfriend and we were just like, you know, PC dancing. It wasn't uh, like genuine's bump and grind or anything. Like we were, we were having, you know, boundaries. And I left without saying goodbye because <laughs> I just had to, to, to leave. It was time because it, it was for me. I was like, I'm, I'm going to fall in love with this girl if I don't leave right now. And that's over the line. So I had to, I had to go. Turns out she thought I was a womanizer and that it wasn't really that cool that I left without saying goodbye. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you're not done. Clearly I can tell, keep going, uh, following season. I'm working as a, as a free ski coach with one of her dear friends who, uh, were on the chairlift and he, she's like, she knew that I, I was single and like, just, you know, no real direction other than just skiing. And she was like, you really need to meet my friend, Alex. And I said, oh, I know Alex. I know all about Alex. She danced with me all night. She had a boyfriend. I, I see how she is. It was like one of those things. Turns out she was single when I thought she had a boyfriend. It was, it was my bad for not even asking. I just assumed. Um, I wouldn't. She kept, she kept pestering me. You got to meet my friend. You got to meet my friend. You got to meet my friend. I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't had to edit one of these sorts of stories. Like, I don't think ever. This one will be fun. This is just all, you guys are going to walk out of here. You have no control over what I do with this. It's not the first time this story has been told. Louise invites me to her birthday party. Is she in Crested Butte at this time as well? Louise is in Crested Butte okay. at this time. I go to her birthday party. We're hanging out. We have some drinks. And then 
in walks Alex and I look over at Louise and I say, you did this on purpose. <laughs> and then Alex and I, of course, because we love dancing, got on the dance floor and the rest is kind of history at that point. So Louise was the matchmaker. Absolutely. 100%. I would blame it all on her. When Louise is finally on the podcast, I have another thing I can ask her about. All right, and now that we know the definition of we, we are headed to California. So you're in California. You are working for someone who you've looked up to for a while, fired up about it. How do you end up in Vermont? So I worked for her for about a year, and that was an interesting situation. And then we coached um, for the free ski team at Sugar Bowl for a couple of years, which was super fun. And then... um, January 26th of 2014, my dad had a massive heart attack. I had spoke to him the day before, and we had a plan to go skiing on Wednesday. Um, I had a ticket. We both had tickets, Hans and I, to Vermont that Monday. I remember I was on the chairlift, and my sister had called me, and my mom had called, and then there was just a text, call me. And they were, of course, you know, frantically driving to the hospital, in tears and I remember asking my sister are you okay and she laughed at me she's like are you kidding me of course I'm not okay and I was just still like kind of so much in shock that I had no idea and it wasn't until I hung up the phone with her and I remember sitting down on the side of a trail at Sugar Bowl and just crying and uh then again meeting up with another coach and they were like you need to go home and I was like no I don't I'm fine and blah and then sure enough talked to the head coach and spent a couple hours on the phone with JetBlue which was you know for me so weird that I had already been planning to go home you know and we changed our ticket and went home and a week later he died um so I remember two weeks before that and looking at Hans and being like the family's doing great my sister's great my dad and mom are great everybody's great let's move back to Crested Butte <laughs> And then when this happened, I was like, guess what, honey, (laughs) we're moving to Vermont. (laughs) And sure enough, um, May 15th, we pulled into town. So that was kind of, you know, an unexpected turn. I was going to go a bunch of different places, but I'm just, I'm. (laughs) It was, yeah, that's a heavy hitter, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was, I could see it was hitting you just going through it. And it's kind of, so this is 2015. 14? Yep. May 2014. And basically, we were in Virginia. We had decided to take this whole long route to get back. And that trip was definitely had a heavy weight on my shoulders. But I remember we were in Virginia and we were just kind of like, I think we were trying to like pause it, like trying to like just slow it down. And I talked to my mom like, mom, I think we're going to stay another day. And my mom was like, the the people with the scrap metal people are coming to get your father's truck because he had this old 1973 Dodge power wagon that we used to plow the driveway with and it was all rusted out and it basically had trees going through it, growing through it at this point. And, you know, he had cut out a hole in the center to shift it and there was like holes in the floorboards. So it was just like, it had a lot of memories for me. And she's like, they're coming on Friday. If you're not here, it's going to be gone. I was like, all right, we're going home. (laughs) So we uh, showed up basically that day and took a bunch of photographs of the truck and scrap metal people came and dragged it away. And then boom, back in Vermont, haven't left since. Let's shift to the jewelry a little bit. Yeah. I don't know anything about you. I'm not wearing any jewelry. I have a wedding wedding ring ring. on. Yeah. (laughs) 
When did you get your ears pierced? How old were you? I was eight. And the only reason I got my ears pierced is because my sister, she was six. She begged and pleaded and begged and pleaded. <laughs> and of course, like if one child got something, the other child got it. So of course, I think I was eight. I think she was six. So we got our ears pierced. And I see you're wearing it. My wife wears it all the time. Your work, these reclaimed inner tubes, which we'll talk about a whole bunch. Was there always kind of a frustration with jewelry as designed prior to, like you solved a problem with your jewelry, right? Had you struggled with that problem prior? Talk about that. I mean, I guess actually in some sense, yes, because I always wanted to wear big earrings and they were always really heavy and uncomfortable. And I, a lot of the metal jewelry I would make is bigger and it would just be heavy. I didn't really... It, I kind of just stumbled upon it. It wasn't, I had sort of like stopped wearing jewelry at a certain point because I was living a very outdoors lifestyle and it was just challenging and to change in and to worry about your silver. And, you know, one friend said to me, she's like, your earrings, they don't freeze to my face when I'm skiing, you know, cause they're not metal. And I'm like, oh, Hey, that seems helpful. Yeah. I never thought about that. I was like, oh yeah, that that's, that does seem helpful. And now I'm ruined. Like I can't wear a lot of jewelry, a lot of earrings because like, I have four inch earrings on right now and I feel like I'm wearing nothing, you know, it's awesome. When did you first start hacking at a piece of rubber? Like, why did you start doing that? Yeah. So, um, my dear friend, Louise Lintelak, we were out in Sedona for her bachelorette party and she had these hand cut pair of really big feathers made out of inner tubes and they were, you know, very simple. And I was like, these are cool. And she's like, yeah, you should do this. And I'm like, you're right. I could do that. Like that <laughs> looks easy. And uh, so then sure enough, two weeks later, we got given tickets to Burning Man. And I was like, what am I going to give? I don't have anything to give. And I was like, wait a second, I'll make feather earrings and necklaces. And everybody loved them. And I was like, this is awesome. And I was like, I could do this. And, and therefore started just making feathers. And then we moved home. And Hans found a laser cut jewelry class at the Generator in Burlington. They had just opened like a month or two before. It was their first laser cut jewelry class that they had at the place at all. And I went and it was awesome. And ever since I've just been cutting rubber. How many items do you think exist in the marketplace? How many bracelets, earrings, what have you, have you cranked out? Like, Oh, have I? Like how many units? Just, uh, yeah. How many units exist in, in on the planet? Oh boy, probably close to about five, uh, that might be high, maybe 3,000, I want to say. I think about in a year I do something like, last year I probably did something to 2,000 pairs. Right. When you're outfitting a store, you're giving them 20 or 30 items. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And they're all, you know, like they're laser cut, but they're all assembled and done by us. The laser cutting. Could you just laser cut any design at all? Is it just as easy as just as if you can draw it, you can just cut it? I mean, I don't want to give away my secrets, but kind of, you know, I use Adobe Illustrator and um, RD works for the laser. And as long as you're not cutting PVC or vinyl, you can draw it and you can do it. You know, obviously there are parameters to how thin of a line you can do, but that's what makes the rubber so amazing is that it's, we call it durable lace and it really just it allows you to get such detail, you know, and it's so much more durable that like these designs would probably fall apart in, in like leather or fabric or something else. It would be so lazy yet so effective to just do the outline of the state of Vermont, wouldn't it? 
Yes. That would be so, it's just cheating, but people would buy it. They probably would. Uh, you know, I actually hadn't thought about doing that, but that's a really good We can idea. edit this out just so that no one else takes that idea and just does it, or you need to do it, because <laughs> right. that's the thing. I would struggle between really wanting to do artistic, interesting work, Yeah. you know, because you went to school for it and you have a, a passion and a profession for it. And I'm just thinking like, okay, what the hell is somebody going to buy? Right. Well, and that's really funny because... You know, people want bicycles, like little earrings of bicycles. And I've made that. And people want butterflies and they want, you know, feathers. And that's great. And those things sell because people, they relate to symbols. You know, they they identify with them. But for me, it is very much about the abstract shapes that I come up with. And, and that's just like, you know, where my talent lies. And that's kind of what we've always, I'm fortunate enough that sets me apart is you know, it's an amazing material. It's upcycled, which is something we can super stand behind because I don't want to just be making another plastic product to put into the world. I just, I, and I know that, you know, like there's room to grow always and room to do better, but at least this is a start. So there's that. And then there's, you know, I, I do have a Pratt education, which is, it's nice to be like, okay, I, I did that. That's cool. You know, where do you get the actual inner tubes? How do they arrive to you? Well, sometimes they get dropped off on our doorstep, which is really cool. But mostly, um, you know, Bike Express, the OGE, Waterbury Sports, I ride sometimes. And then whenever we go on a sales trip and we go to bike shops, we ask them for their tubes. Oh, Earl's. We went dumpster diving one day. Han spent like an hour going through Earl's <laughs> dumpster. <laughs> and we got like a whole trash bin full of tubes. It was amazing. Do you ever have a shortage or do you always kind of have enough? So far, knock on wood, we haven't run out. Um, we try to stay really far ahead of it because, you know, that that is the, you know, if you talk to a biker, they're like, well, tubeless is taking over. So there aren't going to be any more tubes any anymore. So what are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll definitely, you know, come to that bridge when it happens. But for now, my husband pops so many tubes and tubeless that I'm not too worried. Yeah, we have four bikes in the household. I'm sure they all have tubes because yeah. we're not buying that sort of bicycle that would be so technologically advanced not to right. have them. And even if you are, like if you're a heavy cyclist and you're riding four to five hours, you know, on the weekends or whatever, most likely is you're probably gone through a few tubes in the summer. And it doesn't matter how old or how beat it is, you can put it to use? Pretty much. Yeah, sometimes when they're really old, they get a little dry rot and so they get some creases in them. So those are a little more challenging. But for the most part, we'll take all your discarded tubes. And are you working with any other materials right now or primarily the tubes is... So we primarily use the tubes. I do have a small like metal collection um, on the website and that I sell at the Artisans Gallery. We have been messing around with some leather scraps um, and some metal scraps here and there, but um, we're still just streamlining the production of the rubber and getting that to a sustainable point that once that happens, we can really do more R&D on other recycled products. And what were the kind of key milestones for the business? Well, I had always made jewelry and I had made a couple of pieces that people had always been like, I'll buy that. Like, is that for sale? And then it wasn't until August of 2014 that I registered the business um, as Alexandra Barron Designs. And uh, so that was a big milestone. And then in 2016, I think I quit my job at Hen of the Wood to go full time into the business. And then this January, we just purchased our own laser cutter, which we had been using and renting space on or time on from a gentleman in Roxbury, on Roxbury Mountain. But um, 
that was a huge milestone. Where'd you put it? Where's it sitting? It's in our garage. His A&E freeze in it, so the water cooler won't freeze. <laughs> Heated garage or just a- ambient temp? Ambient temp. We have a little heater in it. <laughs> our laser guy, our like tech guy was like, yeah, just put antifreeze in the water. It'll be fine. You know, you've got this like very expensive tube that it's cooled through water. So we're like, well, we can't let that freeze. So now our water pumping through our laser is green. It's awesome. Do people return jewelry? They normally lose one or break one. Um, like what's your customer service like? Well, what's involved with that? I, you know, I say I give a lifetime warranty until I get burned. So, you know, if, if you lost one, I'm probably going to ask you to pay for a replacement. If it broke, I'm going to try like hell to replace it for you because I believe in standing behind a product. You know, I, I make an upcycled product. I understand it's not perfect, but I'd rather you walk away feeling like I cared and tried to do the best I could than man, that woman was, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like that, that's just not the way to run business. So of the way you are getting your product in the hands of people from direct sales to in-person events to distributor stores, Mm -hmm. which one's kind of first, second, and third? Totally. Um, You know, because I worked for Mishu and I really liked the model where it's wholesale and you kind of can make your own hours and you're not like opening a brick and mortar every day to talk to the customer. I went the wholesale direction. We have about 30 to 40 wholesale accounts across the country right now. 30% of our business is direct sales through the website um, and vending, you know, and just doing a couple of craft fairs here and there. Um, But mostly I've been doing the wholesale thing and you know we do do social media we try to stay up on that type of thing because it's it's just an ever-changing market you know a lot of people will say that direct sales are the way to go but you have to find those clients and unless you're really savvy at marketing that can be very expensive but you're still doing all these yourself i mean what happens when you get the order for x hundred yeah, that that you're will, just in the garage cranking. Yeah, yeah, we haven't gotten that big of an order yet. My margins are also pretty good, so that helps a lot. Um, and that's a, that's a jewelry thing, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's a rubber thing. <laughs> oh yeah, probably both. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and also I got some really good advice on how to price my my material, my uh, time and materials early on. Um, I had a great mentor with David Cohn of Baked Beads. Um, he's just been so helpful and given me such really good advice along the way. So I've been really fortunate in that regard. So the horizon goals, what's next in years zero through two? Yeah, goals. Uh, 100K this year is a goal. Uh, Hopefully we'll see, you know, trying to grow, just grow. (laughs) Uh, Goals to maybe be in a couple Whole Foods or REIs, do more sales trips, expand to more materials, we are members of 1% for the planet, so that's always exciting to partner with them and uh, maybe become, if we can, a B Corp, which is like what Patagonia and uh, a bunch of other businesses are. So that's, you know, those type of things. Goals for amount of days on skis? A hundred. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you do last year on that? I don't know. Being in Vermont's a little harder. It rains a lot. <laughs> I think Hans probably got a hundred and I probably got maybe 60 to 70. But, you know, the first winter we moved home was the most amazing winter. We didn't have a freeze-thaw cycle. Bullshit. 
Yeah. There's no zero winters. There's no zero winters. Dude, it was 2014 to 15. We totally did. It could have been great. There's no zero winters. You're not moving me off that. (laughs) All right. Well, it was great. And it was cold. I will grant that. (laughs) And so I always said that that was a gift from my dad. You know, okay, you're moving home to Vermont. I know this wasn't your ideal expectation of what was going to happen, but you're here. So that was an amazing winter. And then the second winter, it was crap. (laughs) It was like the worst winter. And I figured that was like, okay, it's time to kick your butt into gear. You got to grow this business. So now it's always been for me kind of this work play balance that is, you know, when I look back is really why I didn't become an art teacher and why I did become an entrepreneur. I wanted, I believed that I, that I could have both. I could have my cake and eat it too. And while my grandfather still thinks I'm a lazy ski bum, <laughs> I'm like, I'm a professional ski bum. I work hard and I play hard. And luckily Stowe opens at eight in the morning. So I go from eight until nine or 9.30 and then I go home and I work. Well, that's why this podcast happened. Cause we were both going from eight to 9.30, like <laughs> two and a half, three weeks ago. And behind the goggles i'm like is that hans and alex <laughs> i think it is in the gondola line before it opened all right lightning round you ready yeah number one local mountain bike trail in your opinion my favorite yeah or your go-to or the one you ride the most oh well i ride perry hill the most because i live in town so if i was to say perry hill um permission to burning spear Rostaman is awesome disney is great the triple is always super fun and you have to think about it. Um, Joe's when not wet is always fun. Um, oh, and the dragon back on six flags is also fun. There you go. Most of that went over my head because <laughs> the kids haven't let us out there that much quite yet, but Kaylin is leading the charge back into the, uh, into the, into the trails. Let's see if you know this one. Do you know the brand of tire on your car? It's not Blizzak anymore because we got something cheaper. I don't. <laughs> Hans does. Hankook. Hankook tire. There it is. <laughs> they say it's just as good as Blizzak. Who's, the, who's they? Uh, the tire gods. <laughs> All right. If you were forced to eat Subway, what would you order? Meatball sub. <laughs> That's what I always get. What kind of jewelry would look good on me? Rubber. Be more specific bracelets i don't know we rubber could... bracelets yeah i'm intimidated by your husband's number of syllables what do you suggest uh just add on another name every time i try to sit down and like look at your whole name <laughs> dude i'm intimidated i mean yeah I, if i was to add his can, last can name can you say his whole name for me into the microphone i would love to it's hans jonathan Joaquil von Briesen. and that's because his family is spiritual in many different ways he even has, actually, there's like a whole, it's Hans Jonathan Joaquil Anuki Red Willow Von Briesen. Okay. After the beep, we're going to hear how that <laughs> impacted his life till now. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> actually, we're going to do it right now. Nice hat. Thank you, sir. First time we've ever had a, I don't know what we just call you, a witness. Pod witness. Pod witness. And one question that I threw at Alexandra was your total number of syllables. Oh, boy. You have an ample amount. Yes. Go ahead and help us with them, understand them, say them out loud, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So um, Hans the fourth, 
Jonathan, Joaquil, Von Briesen, Hans, obviously passed down name, uh, Jonathan, actually after my uncle, Jonathan, Joaquil, um, a big portion of my family actually converted to Islam. And uh, actually, my parents actually practiced for three years. Uh, my uncle still does and raised his five kids up in a full Islam lifestyle. My grandparents on my dad's side still practice. Um, so, Waqil means the protector in Arabic. And then Von Briesen, obviously, is my last name, which is big and long on its own. We all have to get on the phone with customer service right. at some point in our lives. I got good at that because sometimes I go into it and uh, they say, where is your name filed? And I say, well, <laughs> like take Kenyans, for example, we're frequent dog food buyers from Kenyans. And so we have our name on a card and now I know where it is. But initially it takes a while to find it. Is it, is it under Hans, like the H? Right. Is it under J for Jonathan? Is it under V for the Vaughn of Von Briesen? Or is it under the B of the Von Briesen? <laughs> it's funny the kind of mail that I get. Almost like magical how some of it would actually arrive at my house. The way that my name has been spelled or delivered. <laughs> so you guys met in Crested Butte though. Let's get off the name. I mean, I'm still, I will never not be blown away by the name. Likewise. I'm just going to be, but there's only so much ground we can cover there. And back to the Alexandra Baron Klein lightning round. Number one childhood cartoon. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> um, the first thing that came to mind, which wasn't a cartoon, was Calvin and Hobbes. You know, I very much identify probably with Hobbes. <laughs> and uh, then it would be the Looney Tunes and like Woody the Woodpecker. And uh, oh, we used to watch like Pinky and the Brain and all the goofy ones from the WB. <laughs> I was that generation. I was the WB. WB generation. All right. Shout out all the ABD designs for people who want to check out the rubber weightless awesome stuff that my wife is always wearing and that you're always wearing and they're just straight from Waterbury, Vermont. Go. So like the website? So like the website. Okay. So it's abdculture.com. And you have 43 retailers, so you need to recite all of them right now. Uh, I could recite a few of them. Um, just, I'm kidding. Just just uh, <laughs> a handful of local ones would be great though. Totally. Warren Store, Artisans Gallery, Stowe Street Emporium, Waterbury Sports, The Spa uh, at the Stowe Lodge, um, Ride Studio in Stowe, uh, Bicycle Express, the OGE, Tail Feather. Those two last ones are in Burlington and Salam in Montpelier. And what are you doing tomorrow? working <laughs> shipping out orders that's a good answer <laughs> thanks no the skiing's been kind of you know blah right now so i'll wait till wednesday and thursday when we get a refresh that's a whole work life work play balance thing. we'll see you out there wednesday morning good i look forward to it all right thanks alex <laughs> thank you and it's rant time there's a problem with the chicken at Spruce Camp. Personally, I have no issue, but the customers do. Someone in food and beverage, or Broomfield, decided that they should combine regular fries, spicy fries, waffle fries, and sweet potato fries as the base of the chicken finger bowl. 
This is resulting in guests dropping their cash on huge bowls of fries and chicken, only to have their kids become afraid of it. Perhaps it's time to not force spicy fries on the children who have yet to embrace spicy anything. If I wanted to fill a five-gallon bucket of abandoned but otherwise tasty fries and chicken, it would take me an hour on a Saturday. And actually, I've done that, and I'm unable to eat it all myself. There's just too much. End of rant. Did you know I've been cranking on the new Locals and Visitors format since episode 55? Yep, every two weeks since October. You're welcome. VPR taught me how to do this back in 2015. Thanks, Coach. She knows who she is. Soon my next Xander Base Depth column will pop out on vtskiandride.com, and I'm also providing occasional analysis for my local newspapers, The Stowe Reporter, Waterbury Record, and The News and Citizen. Support local news, y'all. And yeah, if you want some brand new pod stickers, hit up patreon.com slash wintrymixcast to join the supporters club. Stick around after the beep for a bit more depth with Hans the Pod Witness. Goodbye. Hans and Alex, you guys are business partners or at least business parallel. Totally. Because you're up to a, you're a photographer. Yes. Among other things. What are the other things? The list goes on a free ski coach, primarily photographer, um, videographer as well. Uh, Jewelry assembler, marketing and PR. (laughs) Um, I, 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 it's hard for me to break them down independently because I feel like it, it all sort of like vibes in, in this uh, conglomerate all together at once. Like when I'm shooting pictures, I'm, I'm not just a photographer, but I'm, I'm thinking about where that's, where that picture is going or what it's for, whether it be to promote my business or if I'm shooting skiing, the athlete, you know, promoting them or for jewelry or, you know, what else it might be. So I got five fingers on my hand. Yes, sir. You're shooting skiing. There's my thumb. Yep. You're shooting maybe weddings. Yep. There's a events. Finger. We'll call it events. Weddings and events. Shooting jewelry. There's three. I got two fingers left. What else are you shooting? I'd say landscapes and architecture are probably the next two. If there's six or seven, they're minor, right? We covered most of the stuff. Well, bike biking. Bike, I mean, action biking. sports. My, I mean, that's the thing is like biking. photography is one of those things that. I sort of stumbled into it as far as a professional realm, but it's it's really just documenting the life. So my life travels among many different avenues, and I'm always shooting. So, you know, it's it's always it's always curious what comes comes up. I'm curious the variety of ways to monetize photography. I always me, think me of too. oh well, you have <laughs> you have you know weddings, and you sell the pictures to the weddings. Um, I've noticed that a lot of newspapers now 
on their websites, anywhere you see a photograph, it's just like, would you like to buy this photo? And they'll like send you a print. I totally. mean, what are the what are the variety of ways that you actually either monetize or just create value with photography? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing. And you can watch like across different avenues how different photographers have chosen to do it. I mean, even take your podcast, for example, you know, how, how have you made that be something that can work? So there are like the, you know, the in-house photographer at say the Times Argus, like they get paid. Okay. But then they can turn around and it, every time you're on the street shooting, people are like, Hey, can I have that photograph? It's like, yeah, you go to the website and you buy it. So you're, you're not just shooting a single, you're shooting a single photo but it's going into the different avenues at which, you know, how, how the outside world can access it. And then, you you know, if you're, if you're a landscape photographer, just like a scenics photographer, I mean, take P- Peter Miller. He started by making these amazing books. Now he's got a gallery, he doesn't do the books anymore, but he's selling these huge fine art prints because he's established himself. So like right there, you have either buy a digital copy of it or you can go and buy like a, a really nice print out of a gallery. And that's just two ways. Events photographer, you get paid to be there shooting, and then you can turn around and sell the images to the guests. So you're shooting a single photograph, but hopefully you're getting paid from multiple angles. So, you know, people people with blogs, that's that's a tough one too. But again, you, you make the image available, essentially. You know, it, it's funny when you look at artists, a lot of artists are pretty uh, introverted. And their art is the way that they share themselves. So it's hard to take the business element and insert it almost on top of the thing that you're expressing yourself through. Because you have to make the money. The money is what's important as far as like eating. But the art is the thing that matters, right? So it's like you have to find this balance and it's really hard. Like all I want to do is share my work. I shoot a picture... And I put it on Instagram. The screwed up part about that is the ski journal isn't going to isn't going to publish a photo that's been on Instagram. And I have to wait to publish. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do you know? That's an impossible world. And I think it's totally backwards. Do the URL shout out. Avanthans.com. It's not, it's not Hans Vaughn. <laughs> well, I had to make it sort of complicated. People are like, what's Avant? Or what, why, why that? Why not Hans von Briesen? But yeah, Avant, A-V-A-N-T, Hans.com. Avanthans.com. And so concludes this episode of Waterbury Entrepreneurial Power Couple Talk. Goodbye. <laughs> so Hans is the better half of A-B-D or the, well, that, that, that's what they're called. I call it the better half. Was that not? Everybody's laughing when I said that. I don't know if I can. I, maybe I should restart. No, I think it's. No, I'm going to change that up. I'm going to change that up. I'm going to change it up. I have a better way. I have a better way already. So Hans is the other half. <laughs> <laughs>